On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with your host, Brent Mikosh. Brent, good to be with you again. You always have something really interesting in store. What have we got going on in this episode? I do. And today, you know, we're going to talk about uh, the use of psychedelics in medicine. And my interest in this, full disclosure to anybody listening, is I've actually never personally done any psychedelics. And not just saying that because this is being recorded, but it's the truth. But it is something that I'm very interested in. My interest in in it started back in the early 2000s. There was a phenomenal article that I read by a woman named Kira Salak, and it was a National Geographic adventure. The article is called To Hell and Back. You can find it online. But what it was is this Kira Salak had dealt with lifelong depression. She was also she's an investigative journalist and did mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff overseas and really interesting background. But uh, she was kind of haunted by this deep depression, by a lot of darkness in her life. And she went down to Peru and drank ayahuasca for about a week. And the story, the, the, the article rather, is her story of the profound impact that those psychedelic experiences had with her, not only at the time that she was actually taking, you know, taking the ayahuasca, but how it has rippled through her life since then and how it lifted her depression and how it's, uh, it really changed her life for the positive. And that led me to read a number of stuff on DMT and you know, LSD and the acid tests that were done in the 1960s. And lately, there's been a recurrence in the use of psychedelics for for people dealing with mental health issues, for vets right. coming back with PTSD, mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. And it's just something, again, that that's uh, no personal experience with it, but really is fascinating to me. And so I've got a phenomenal guest on today. I've got Quinn Snyder. He is a, uh, a doctor. He's an ER doc with several of the leading hospitals here in the Valley. He also is the chief medical officer of, um, of a place called Day Trips here in Arizona that allows ketamine trips. And he's got a ton of background. I mean, this guy's been interviewed interviewed by PBS, BBC, CBS during the pandemic because he was obviously on the front lines during the COVID COVID pandemic. He's gone to India to discuss to to rather to um, to study plant based medicine, and so he knows a lot about this. And I'm just really excited to have this conversation to see what we can learn about you know using these alternative therapies to to perhaps help some people that are having some significant issues that they're trying to get over in their lives. So. Quinn, I don't know. Is that is that a good enough intro for what we're going to talk about today? Hey, that was a great intro, Brent. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, and thank you for coming on. So, for I guess first, you know, talk. Give me a little bit of background for you in terms of how you got into medicine, and then what maybe made you make this turn into also looking at some of these alternative therapies. That's a great question. You know, how did I get into medicine? I, I was always one of these kids that was like destined to go into medicine. I think. Um, you know, I felt it very early that that kind of the healing path was where I was headed, you know, and it kind of started out more the pendulum really in my life. It was really more in that integrative medicine, alternative medicine, so to speak. Uh, I grew up in uh, in in the valley in L.A. and my mother was really into a lot of that, that kind of stuff. And we're doing some energy healing from very early on, as I recall. And I kind of went into medicine with this idea that kind of I was going to end up in some more uh, non-Western forms of medicine, ended up going to medical school at the University of Arizona in Tucson, 
and um, explored that that realm pretty significantly um ended up studying under Andrew Weil a little bit while I was there as well and uh ended up traveling to India and studying plant-based medicines and different forms of medicine that frankly I'd never been exposed to uh when I was in the middle of medical school but then at that point I kind of realized that you know my interest really was more purely in science-based medicine for firmly rooted in science-based medicine and I chose the most Western of the Western medical disciplines, frankly, to go into uh, clinical practice. And that is emergency medicine, which is the paragon of Western medicine. Truthfully, you're really not going to go see a homeopath if you uh, break a bone or have a heart attack or a variety of those things. I mean, you might afterwards, but certainly at the time you're going to come to me. You know, I really relish uh, doing emergency medicine. It's it's just absolutely incredible. It's a very rewarding specialty. I've enjoyed it tremendously, but I also have been exposed to a lot of the holes in medicine along the way, especially in regards to mental health. And you know, you might you might not be aware of this, but I mean, pretty much every ER all across the country typically has many people with behavioral health issues who are awaiting placement, they're acutely suicidal, they're severely depressed, they're psychotic, they're awaiting placement for a variety of conditions, and they're stuck in the emergency department. And frankly, the ER is not a place uh, that is designed for healing uh, for uh, for mental health conditions in particular. So um, there needs to be a lot of reform, we need to do a lot better. And then I started kind of coming around to a medication that I had used very frequently in the emergency department, which is ketamine. I've been using it for years. I've used it on children as young as two years of age up through nine, people in their 90s and uh, everything in between for a variety of uh, conditions. But but I hadn't really been exposed to ketamine in particular as being a medicine that could treat uh, various uh, psychological issues. Um, and, and those are really in particular depression, anxiety, and trauma. Um, among other things, eating disorders. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I think like going back to that article that you mentioned, I, I, I read that article. It was really incredible, very powerful article. And it just kind of illustrates how there's there seems to be overlap with all of these different kinds of medications that have psychedelic properties in what they can treat. They all seem to be able to to treat different conditions with different uh, different degrees of, of potency and ability to to um, get people out of uh, different states of mind. And um, we're still learning a lot. There's so much we don't know as to, you know, as to why people are experiencing these, uh, these considerable changes in their life by taking these medications. You know, in that article, she was doing ayahuasca for a week. And, you know, the, the active ingredient in ayahuasca is essentially DMT, which is a very, very powerful uh, psychedelic medication. Um, but you know, there's there's just a variety of things happening out there in uh, in a whole bunch of different ways, ranging from psilocybin, uh, MDMA, and ketamine in particular. Those are really the top three medications that people are exploring out there right now. So, yeah. And so, what is ketamine? So, how would you have used it in the ER versus how is it being used to help people, maybe in a more in a very different setting? Because you, you mentioned if if you're coming into the ER, ER is not a relaxing place. As you, as, you, as you know, I've, I've seen you some mornings after your long shifts and and it's a very intense place. But how would you use it in the ER versus what does ketamine do in a different environment? Yeah, the great question. So ketamine in the ER is typically used for uh, general anesthesia. In fact, that's 
really the only thing that general ketamine is actually FDA approved for is um, is for uh, anesthesia, procedural sedation. So I've I've uh, sutured complex lacerations in people of uh, you know typically smaller kids. It's very hard to do a laceration on a small kid. Ketamine gives you a good uh, forty five minutes of um, of time that you can actually work with the patient adequately and they're not severely agitated because they're having a dissociative experience. They're taking being taken out of their bodies um, during this period of time. And, uh, and then, yeah, you can, you can actually use it for, uh, for anesthesia and everything thereabouts. So in fact, ketamine is actually the most commonly used anesthetic worldwide. Um, it's, it's very cheap. It's, uh, it was first synthesized in 1962. It's been FDA approved since 1970. So people have a lot of familiar familiarity with ketamine. Um, but what's different is that really in the past 20 years, people have started waking up to these sub anesthetic doses. So it's actually a smaller dose than you get um, with anesthesia. Um, but these sub anesthetic doses appear to have very, uh, very powerful psychedelic properties and psychotherapeutic properties that we're still learning about, frankly. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's just incredible the outcomes we've had. It's, it's just remarkable. And this is not just like a you know, maybe this works, maybe not. There is an enormous body of research out there at this point. Um, in fact, there was an article in the New England Journal earlier this year, which compared ketamine to what was always the longstanding uh, gold standard treatment in medicine for treatment-resistant depression, which is electroconvulsive therapy, which is shock therapy. Most, most people don't know that this is actually still done in many, many uh, hospitals uh, all around the country, all around the world still, but they compared ketamine, a regimen of ketamine to electroconvulsive therapy and that, and they found that ketamine is at least as good, at least as good. So at least as good, if not better than electroconvulsive therapy, which was always the gold standard for treatment resistant depression. So it really suggests that yes, ketamine is an incredibly powerful drug and may actually be the best possible treatment for depression that currently exists. So when you're talking about um, these these lower doses than you would use in the ER, in the ER, I'm guessing that the goal is just to zonk you out so you can go to, you know, repair whatever needs to be repaired with the human body. These these lower doses is the is the patient still with you? Are they are they aware? Are they can they have a discussion with you? Like what's happening with them? How how alert are they? Sure, uh, it depends on the dosing. So some people can be aware of, of what's going on. Um, but the truth is most people are really not, um, in these dissociative doses, they're pretty much having an out of body experience. That's what it feels like. That's what most people report. Um, but, but, uh, but yes, there are, um, dosing regimens where people have found that some people can actually continue to communicate and be somewhat aware of what's going on. There's, there's kind of two different ways that people are using ketamine in terms of what we call ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So, so the studies have found that yes, ketamine unto itself is a medication that can treat depression. Um, however, they've also found that when used adjacent to psychotherapy, that that's actually the best way to achieve the best possible outcome. So some people are doing intramedicine session psychotherapy. So they'll do, they'll, they'll give a sub-anesthetic dose, usually a lower, a, a much lower dose, uh, and then try to have a conversation basically while they're under the influence of the medication. Other people, and this is our general philosophy at day trip. And, and frankly, it's because uh, it, it's not just a philosophy. I think the data support <clears throat> that depth of dissociation matters, that if you actually give people a deeper 
uh, dissociative experience that they will end up achieving better outcomes as a result. So our philosophy is the best way to do it is to provide people the medication and then what we call integrate in the first one to seven days after the treatment with a psychotherapist. Now, I want to get into what that process looks like, but let's let's look at, obviously, a lot of pop, a lot of percentage of the population here in the United States, Western world in general, uh, definitely depressed. If you look at the use of prescription antidepressants, it's it's high and going higher. What do those medicines, and again, you're talking to a first grader here in terms of medical knowledge, if that, what do those antidepressants do? How do they, how do they affect the brain? Then we're going to get into what ketamine does. Uh, those, those antidepressants, like, so the traditional ones that people talk about um, are SSRIs or like Lexapro, Prozac, those kind of medications. What they do is they, they modulate uh, uh, serotonin within the brain. SSRI stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So it, it leaves basically more serotonin in, in the synapse, so to speak, between neurons now, um, that's probably more uh, biochemical than you need to dig here, but the truth, uh, what it boils down to in the end is that, you know, a lot of people think that SSRIs really only are providing placebo level effect. Um, you know, most people are, they're throwing out there that they think it's about 40% effective, maybe. And yeah, not there that. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's a pretty commonly heard statistic. I mean, it's not just 40%, but it's like, you have to also understand some of the additional effects of these medications, I mean, one, uh, they cause weight gain, two, they cause sexual dysfunction, three, there's a black box warning, which is the highest level warning the FDA can possibly put on anything that shows that there's increased suicidality potentially in the first two weeks after starting the medication. I mean, these this is a medication that has serious limitations. And when you compare that to ketamine, which has, frankly, none of those issues, in fact, ketamine, by the way, is the most potent anti-suicidal drug that exists. I mean, it, to, to me, it's it's relatively apparent that there, there could very well be a day where ketamine may actually be the first line therapy for depression. Now, in terms of biochemistry, ketamine um, modulates glutamate within the brain and uh, and is traditionally known as an NMDA, NIMDA receptor antagonist, just for your viewers who might be interested in that kind of a thing. Um, but, but glutamate and the way ketamine works, so it can increase the propensity towards psychosis in certain populations, especially if you have a history of pre-existing psychosis. So the patients that mostly are, are ineligible for ketamine, like right off the bat, the patients that we don't use ketamine on are people who have a history of schizophrenia. If they have a history of bipolar with psychotic features uh, or, or any history of psychotic issues in, in the past, uh, or if they're pregnant, those are really the hard stops. Those are the people who really should not be taking ketamine. But otherwise, the vast majority of people pending a medical evaluation by by a um, by a provider, there's a decent chance you're going to be eligible for for ketamine. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that that I've kind of been wondering is if you look at the use of medications for as antidepressants, I think a, a lot of you know in the West we have you know having spent a fair amount of time, you you've been in India, I've been to India. And you've got these really challenging parts of the world where there's not as much depression, quite frankly, as we have in the West. And what I wonder, and just based on your own, your, what you've seen there in medicine, a, a thought that I've had is that in the West, we want to view the world as being perfect. The human condition is being perfect. We don't, we don't, we want the ups all the time. We don't necessarily want to look into the darkness for lack of a better term and, and experience those, those, uh, those darker areas, which I, which I do think, you know, are real and they exist and you've got to acknowledge them is what the psychedelics are doing. 
is essentially forcing you to maybe confront some subconscious issues that are underneath the surface that you've been unwilling to, or maybe you didn't even know they were there, but been unwilling to really grapple with and tackle in your own lives. Is that, is that happening? Am, am I on the right track? I, I think that's definitely happening for people. Now, is that why people end up having these good outcomes after taking psychedelic medication? You know, I, I'm just not sure. I think we're still trying to learn. And there's some kind of conflicting data out there in terms of whether or not that kind of experiential component is really critical, or if it's more just simply the biochemical component, which is resulting in, in these changes, you know, and, and that's where that kind of like depth of dissociation question comes into play. And I think the body of evidence does indicate that, that a more significant experience results in improved outcomes. So, and, and I think there's, there's this general, almost higher level theory of psychopathology that exists out there. That's so much of, of these issues, depression, anxiety, and trauma in particular, when people are experiencing these, a lot of their issue is that they can't stop seeing the world in the same way that they're continuing to look at it. And they just, they look at the world the same way over and over and over again. And they're not able to step outside of those guardrails. They're just looking at it the same way. And it looks not so great when you're looking at it from those same perspectives repeatedly, and you're not able to look at it from the outside in. And that's kind of what is that what we think is happening with psychedelic medications is, you know, what I like to say is it's kind of like shaking up the snow globe and allowing the, those uh, snowflakes to settle down and maybe a new pattern. And sometimes if you really want to look at the world in a different way and really achieve much better outcome, just like in that article where she was doing ayahuasca for a week, I mean, boy, she really was shaking up that snow globe and yeah, allowing no question, things question. To, yeah, allowing things to settle in, in a different way. And, and you see the outcomes. I mean, people are are doing a lot better by uh, by um, going through that process. And yes, I, I, I agree with you. I think that process probably is important. So, uh, you know, I think of it in terms of what you're saying, getting outside those guardrails or, or that repetitive thinking, being on that same track, you know, non-drug based NLP, neuro-linguistic neuro programming, sort of same idea is the fact that you want to disrupt what your associations are with something. And you can almost, in a sense, go and something that you might be thinking is a negative aspect in your life. Suddenly you can reframe it. It becomes an opportunity for tremendous growth. And maybe that's what's happening there. But, you know, so take me through, someone shows up at your clinic. They've been dealing with depression for, you know, a decade or more, however long they've been, they've been dealing with it. What does the consultation look like? Where does it go from there? And can you share, obviously, completely confidentially, of course, what some of the experiences have been that people have come back to you with, like what they've learned from it and, and how lasting is that impact? Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll try and take a start to finish. Um, so most people um, with our clinic, they'll either call in or they can go directly on our website and then they can fill out the forms, um, the, the initial intake evaluation forms, where we'll try to determine preliminarily from a medical perspective, if they're, if they're appropriate for ketamine therapy, if we think they're preliminarily appropriate, then they'll have typically a telehealth medical intake. Well, where they'll talk online, make sure everything seems appropriate for the patient, go over some of their medical history. And then at that point, they'll be invited to, if they're approved, then they'll come into the clinic and they'll decide if they want to do an intramuscular experience, which is more just an injection in the arm versus an IV where uh, you you have an IV place, then it's a slow IV infusion. There's there's somewhat different experiences. We've found that the IM experience appears to 
be a more um, a more pleasurable experience, frankly, for the patients. Um, they seem to have fewer adverse reactions in terms of agitation and nausea, which can happen with uh, with anyone receiving ketamine. So when they come in for their session, the they're usually they'll get some initial preparation. So the one of our staff will sit down with them and kind of get them in a good headspace. Okay. And that is a very important part of the process, by the way. When you look Tell me about at that. When you look at the body of of research related to outcomes of people who are receiving psychedelic medications, everybody talks about set and setting. You may have heard of these terms before. Set and setting, you'll hear it all the time. Set as in a good mindset, trying to get people in the right mindset, get them relaxed, get them feeling comfortable before they go into the experience. Try to give them a little bit of a sense of what they might uh, might discover in the in the process. And frankly, it's so variable for most people. I think it's it can be a little hard to describe, but we obviously prepare them as much as we possibly can in advance of the treatment. Once they, and then, and then the other component of course is, is setting, setting being in a very comfortable, safe and relaxed environment is key. And if you look at our website, day trips setting is second to none. We love how relaxed and how positive it feels. I always tell people that if I, you know, me and my business partners, we we've done this together basically to create this environment. I always tell people if I had done this on my own, it wouldn't have looked anything like this. And I'm so glad I didn't do it on my own because of that, because it would have had a lot more chrome and vinyl and stuff that looks just medical. (laughs) You got it. Exactly. Very, very medical feeling. And in fact, the, the vibe at day trip is we've tried really hard to put all those medical things uh, out of view. And trust me, they're all there. There's an AED on site. There's oxygen. There's there's uh, monitoring during all these sessions, you know, for heart rate and pulse ox and all these things. But we really try to minimize that aspect. A lot of people have medical trauma, frankly. A whole lot of people have had serious issues going through the system. And it, um, it can be really, really disconcerting to them just to show up in a medical seeming environment. So we try to do away with as much of that as possible and make it very comfortable. So we start out from that kind of axiom of, yes, we want to establish a good set and setting. Once once we do that, then yes, people receive the medication. So the medication, most people are under the influence of the medication for about 60 to 90 minutes, and they will have a dissociative experience. They will typically feel like they're having an out-of-body experience. They may see vision uh, visions throughout the encounter. They may experience unusual sensations. Our clients all have a face mask and headphones. And one of the main guides of the experience is the music that people uh, are are given during the experience. Most people suggest with the music that people uh, are listening to, there's no, uh, there's no words. Um, it's all, um, yeah, it, it, typically no words. And if you do have words, make it in something that's not your non-native language, because you don't want to fixate on those, uh, on those terms. And uh, you, you don't want that to be your guide. You want just the, the music really to be your guide. So, that lasts for about, let's say, up to 90 minutes. When people are ready, they'll take off their headphones, they'll remove their face masks. It'll be obvious that they're starting to come out of the medication. And then at that point, we have a brief period of it. And at our shop, by the way, people typically get um, tea and uh, some some small bites to kind of help ground them a little bit. I think that's an important uh, piece of the puzzle. Frankly, people like to get some you know, nuts, berries, chocolates, that kind of a thing. 
Um, and then after that, they begin their, what we call early integration. Okay. And at that point, you know, I always tell people that when you're coming out of ketamine, it's, it's almost like you're coming out of a dream. And you, what, what I, what I've found is, is that when you're, when you're dreaming at night and you wake up in the morning, if you want to remember those dreams, you better write it down immediately. And if you don't write it down, you're going to forget everything. So that's what we do for the patient. Basically, we act as scribes on their behalf. So when they come out of it, whatever they experience, whatever was on their mind, um, you know, and we've had, and and then, so you asked about, you know, some of these uh, experiences of what people uh, had experienced. You know, we had, I think, I think we've had a variety of really profound experiences. Uh, one, one that really stuck with me is we had a, we had a client with a history of uh, eating disorder uh, with an, with an eating disorder. And she came out of her experience and uh, felt that she had met her inner child during mm -hmm. the experience. And it was life-changing for her. She, it really, I believe sent her on, on a, on a better path. And, you know, we just, we hear people like this all the time um, coming out with, you know, they might, they might be fixating on an idea. They might have seen their, um, you know, one of their relatives, they maybe felt a sense of emptiness. And I think, you know, people can interpret that in different ways. And a lot of the time, you know, that can be a signifier for, for something else. And uh, yeah, I, I, that, and, and then the integration, I guess the real, what, what I think the most important piece of this is really that integration afterwards. And I think that as you're kind of reorienting to your life before you did ketamine, before your session, and you're asking yourself those questions, well, maybe I need to look at the world this way now. Maybe I should start thinking about it like this rather than how I used to. If you can really engage that way in that one to seven days afterwards, then you'll be sent on a better path for your life moving forward. Speaking to some some of the patients that have been through this, um, you know, two questions, I guess. First, I, I guess everyone's experience is probably a little bit different. For some people, is it is it the ability to, to the disassociation you talk about being able to, again, look at their lives, perhaps from a different from a different um, perspective? Is there you hear some stories, particularly with people who've done other psychedelics, this interconnectedness, this sense that everything is interconnected? Is there is there a common theme or is it really, truly different depending on what people are coming in with that perhaps needs to be dealt with? I, I. <sighs> I think there is, there are just a variety of themes, but I like that. I like that you mentioned that interconnectedness, which I think is a really important component in people with depression. And I think when they do psychedelic medications and they revisit that, that idea that they're not alone, that they are actually connected to other people and their environment. I think people find that quite frequently. You hear that a lot with, uh, with psilocybin in particular, you'll hear that kind of interconnectedness. Frankly, I think uh, ketamine presents, um, it, it can present interconnectedness, but I think I think the sense of um, uh, emptiness and is, is a common theme as well. Like people um, often can feel like that they may have actually died and that's something called ego death. That can happen with a variety of psychedelic medications, but you know, yeah, there. I think they're, I, honestly, I think they're all different. I think people do have just a variety of, of experiences, but I think the common theme in the end really is that I, I think people feel better about themselves. They feel better about their environment, who they are, 
what they look like in the world, what the world looks like to them. But in terms of like just actual experience, yeah, I think it is, it, it can be very personal and it should be very personal. That's, you know, this is, this is an opportunity for a journey into the mind, a journey into consciousness. There's so many other experiences out there where you go visit, you know, London or Paris or, you know, Mexico or whatever. I mean, it's like, this is a journey inside. And that's something that's totally different, I think, for a lot of people. Have you had people come out of the experience and not had a positive time where they've come out and been, for lack of a better term, like, holy shit, what did I just do here? And where you've had to ground them again? Yes, we have. We've had people who have had negative experiences. We've had people who had almost no experience, frankly. There is, for whatever reason, there seems to be a small subset of the population where ketamine doesn't really seem to have much of an effect. And it's it's interesting, but there are some people out there and yes, there are people who have negative experiences. They say with depression, you know, ketamine is probably something in the 80 to 90% effective range. So obviously you're going to get 10 to 20% where it's not effective, but the negative experience can end up being a positive thing for a lot of people. I think, I think a lot of people who have used psychedelic medicines, uh, they, they will tell you that they feel better because they had to do that work. They had to, wade through that challenge that that difficult time and they say even you know if you see something that you are afraid of when you're under the influence of a psychedelic medication you know don't don't turn around don't run away look at it right in the eye and approach it approach it examine it try to understand it and it's okay to be afraid it's okay to go through that difficult moment and yeah frankly just just like uh you know uh Kira Silak, i mean you know, that was oh. a very cha- incredibly challenging, incredibly experience. challenging week she went through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable challenge. But you can see how much that made her a better person as a result. So what does it look like, whether it's been you know profoundly positive or something where maybe something's been revealed that people need to deal with? What sort of advice or follow up do, do you suggest for people in that one to seven days after the experience? Yeah, the best thing is the best thing is that people have ideally a pre-existing psychotherapist. But if they don't, we have we have people that we work with who we can uh, refer people out to and make sure that they try to get adequate therapy uh, adjacent to the treatment. You know, at the same time, don't forget like there is a serious shortage of psychotherapists in this country. Access is a serious problem. You know, 60% of psych- psychotherapists right now aren't taking any new clients. So only 40% of psychotherapists even have any availability whatsoever. It, it's it's a real challenge. And I think it's important, in, in my opinion, I believe that it, it's obvious that ketamine unto itself is a treatment for these conditions. But yes, if you can also connect them to a psychotherapist or psychiatrist, um, then, then yes, that will be in the patient's best interest. But sometimes you can't, you know, you just can't. And my philosophy is, Look, untreated major depression has a 20% mortality rate, as in suicide, okay? So, and there are a whole lot of people, they think potentially half of people don't get any care at all. They don't get any treatment whatsoever. So in my opinion, if somebody comes in looking for ketamine and they have all the signs and symptoms of depression, and maybe they haven't had an extensive experience with a psychiatrist in the past, then yes, I absolutely believe that we'd be doing them an injustice not to provide it to them if they appear appropriate for that, for that therapy. 
And I got kind of a loaded question for you. It, what do you think based on, because you're working in ER, so you, you're seeing stuff acute. My, my thing on, on Western medicine is always like, you know what, if I get hit by a truck, I want to go to the ER because it's all the acute stuff and you guys know how to put people back together. But you have the dep- rates of depression, particularly among young people now that are, are rising, that are going up. Based on your what you've seen in the world, both you know traveling abroad, but also here in the United States, what do you think the core reason is for that? It's getting away from the ketamine discussion. I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are. Why do we have so much depression, so much despair in our society right now? Here in America in particular, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's because of isolation. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the advancement of social media, which I think is great in many ways, but I think it's also an absolute tragedy. I mean, I think there are uh, there, people people are finding themselves more isolated than ever before. And going back to that idea of interconnectedness, which I think is a really serious, uh, seriously important issue. And like people who are in isolation are a lot more likely to harm themselves. They're a lot more likely to be depressed. And, you know, there are numerous studies related to social media, you know, where people who engage more in social media seem to be less happy, less satisfied with their lives. So, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think our lack of community has a lot to do with it. I think we're a very polarized society right now. Um, it's it's obvious the statistics bear that out. So yeah, I think I think um, that's all that's all real. I, I agree with you. I yeah. think that's all real. Let's pivot here real quick and talk about. We're gonna we'll wrap up by talking about the this kind of business. So, what's it like being an entrepreneur in this space? Great question. Ketamine is is just a fascinating uh, space to be a part of. Um, I, coming from the emergency department and then going into ketamine, I mean, the ER is is one of the most chaotic yet heavily regulated environments in the world, and it's and to go to a place like Day Trip, which is relaxed and focused and 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 just it's it's interesting it's just it's just a different vibe <laughs> it's just a totally <laughs> different vibe uh to to be in the setting like this and to to get to connect with some patients more actually and just see how great their outcomes are because you know in the er it's amazing i mean i'll i'll literally save people's lives and i will not hear a thank you from them ever i mean it's incredibly rare for an emergency physician yeah. to get a thank you Yet in the ketamine business, it's amazing how many people have expressed significant gratitude uh, to to all of us for for the care that we've given them. So yeah, that's that's it's it's really enjoyable, which is why I think you're seeing a lot of practitioners gravitate towards this space. Um, right now, ketamine is is pretty much an all cash business, so we don't take insurance, and that's not because we wouldn't like to, it's because the insurance companies haven't gotten on board yet. And that day is coming. It's it's almost certain. There is one form of ketamine that people can use, which is called S-ketamine or Spravato, which uh, does, uh, which you can bill insurance for. But once again, it, it doesn't seem to be as effective as the injectable forms of ketamine. So I'm not exactly enthusiastic about it. I like the fact that, you know, insurance companies are paying for it. We can increase access that way. So that's great. We're not, we're not doing that yet at our clinic, by the way, we're having that discussion, trying to figure out how Spravato works into our business model. You know, where, where does this go? Ultimately we're, we're set up in a way where we look, we are, we believe that 
all these psychedelic medicines when they do come online, when they become legal, um, which they're they're close. I mean, they're they're saying with MDMA in particular, which I really think actually is probably going to be the gold standard treatment for PTSD ultimately, which which is very widespread, by the way. At least at least 15 million Americans have PTSD. The statistics when that comes online, which they're saying, you know, now at the, you know probably Q4 2024, we're going to be ready for it. We're going to embrace it wholeheartedly and we will have we'll be the first clinic in Arizona to have it. And then and then psilocybin too, that regulatory environment I think could end up being a lot more patchwork and confusing more along the lines of cannabis. Um so we'll we'll just have to see how it plays out. You know, right now it's it's legal in some parts of uh, Oregon and some counties and they are administering it in Oregon, um, in Colorado, they're just trying to figure out how that's going to work too. And that's a statewide, that pass on a statewide basis. So people really have all eyes on, on uh, Oregon and Colorado to see how it works out. But yeah, I think there's, there's a ton of potential in, in this business being that it's pretty obvious from the current body of evidence out there that these medications work a whole lot better than our current treatments. And, and one question I've got for you is, you know, you prescribe an SSRI, you've basically now got a client for life. You've got an annuitized revenue stream. How many of the doses of ketamine does it take to manage or maybe even reverse depression? Well, with the, the treatment-resistant depression protocols, which I think are probably applicable to most forms of depression, frankly, the treatment-resistant depression protocols in the, in the New England Journal were um, twice weekly for three weeks. So total of six sessions. And then, and, and yeah, and it showed demonstrable outcomes, uh, demonstrably better outcomes as a result of that compared to ECT. So that's what we typically recommend to patients is six sessions over, over a three-week period for depression. Now, what we've seen is that some people will come in for uh, almost a tune-up, let's say, maybe quarterly after that, and that seems to kind of keep them afloat. But some people that may last a lot longer, um, the, the ketamine might have that uh, cumulative and durable effect, so to speak, uh, which which may last for uh, for a year or even more. Um, Huberman had a great podcast on ketamine, by the way. I highly recommend it. I think he for for some of your listeners who are maybe more into uh, the scientific as aspects and whatnot, I think he really detailed that out over a couple hours, just so people know. Cool. Now, how do people find you? First of all, who should be looking for you and how do people find you? Yeah, I think anybody who has depression, anxiety, or trauma, uh, especially should be looking for us. Uh, they can go directly to our website, Daytrip. It's spelled D-A-Y-T-R-Y-P.com. Um, we're located uh, in the Arcadia neighborhood in Phoenix. We're right on uh, 44th and Osborne, in case you're local. It's right on the way to the airport for a lot of people. And uh, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we do get a lot of referrals from psychi local psychiatrists and psychologists and also primary care providers because uh, they know that we're, we're able to service their clients pretty readily. And we're also in a great position because there is, in, in case you're not, you're not aware, there is actually a pretty significant ketamine shortage out there right now. Uh, you may have seen some articles on this. There's a pretty significant ketamine shortage. And we're, we're uh, very lucky that we have a pretty sizable supply that we have purchased and have continuing uh, access to ketamine in our clinic. So we've actually gotten uh, a lot of people who have been at other clinics previously who have run out of ketamine 
and now they're coming to us. So we're very happy to work with with them. And uh, and we've also developed some relationships with clinics around town to help each other out. Well, Quinn, thanks so much for coming in and discussing this. And, and I love your perspective because, you know, I think that there's, if you look at Eastern medicine versus Western medicine and ketamine, I wouldn't necessarily call that Eastern medicine, but let's say at least the experience it's delivering is something that might be tied more to, to traditional medicine. You know, I think there's room for both. And, and I think that um, the fact that you've got a foot in each of those worlds makes you um, incredibly able to discuss it. So thanks again for, for pulling some time out of your day and having this conversation with us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Brent. Really great. Great time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Brent. That was, uh, is always a very interesting conversation in your podcast. I, I do have one really quick question, if, if I might, in that as both of you were discussing, there's nothing really new about this kind of treatment. I mean, it's through various cultures over millennia. You you can go to India, you can go to South America, you can stay here in North America. So given the fact that it it's not new, why, when is it, it, there seems to have been a reluctance to explore it. I can understand people being skeptical about saying, hmm, but the, I don't understand the reluctance to explore it as a, a viable, real treatment. I get the sense from some of the stuff you said that it's beginning to change, but why, why that reluctance? Why that, that fear, if you will? Really excellent question. I think there's a variety of reasons why one, I think that, you know, as, as Brent had alluded to earlier in terms of kind of having some of these negative experiences is that, yeah, people can, can, can have negative experiences. And I think that's really challenging. And I think a lot of people find that, possibility to be uh, very scary. Um, so I think unto itself, I think there's a lot of kind of skepticism about what that experience might look like right. and whether or not that could be really terrifying to somebody because there are moments where that can happen. Now, higher level, I, I think what happened before, because you're right, a lot of this stuff has been studied previously. You actually look at the research that was done in the 60s and 70s and there is a lot of stuff out there that has yep. already been done and we're kind of almost reinventing the wheel in in some ways just revisiting a lot of these studies but from a more uh you know modern perspective let's say but the stuff that was done in the 60s 70s what happened was is that it was done recklessly and not the studies but the way people then used it you know timothy leary gave yeah. LSD to a thousand people in golden gate park okay that is completely absurd, totally inappropriate, should never happen again. That was something that set back probably the whole idea of using these medications for psychotherapeutic purposes, literally for decades, literally for decades. And meanwhile, there's a burgeoning mental health crisis in this country, and we had to shelve these things for a very long time. And it's it's an absolute tragedy that that happened. So I think most people in the industry feel pretty strongly that we are custodians of these medications and we have to be very careful and deliberate with how we're using it. We cannot be using these uh, in an inappropriate or reckless way ever. Uh, we have to make sure that we're uh, living up to, uh, frankly, the, the power of these medications. We owe, we owe them a debt of gratitude and we have to make sure that we are using them responsibly. I think that's what you're about to see in this next phase is a lot more responsible use. I hope so. The things I, I fear of what could happen, you know, if people are using them irresponsibly is that, yeah, we could revert back to a time where people 
are uh, are unable to have access to these medications, which will literally save lives. Okay, these are medications that will save lives, and if we screw this up, everybody will. Uh, it, it will. It won't. It won't it, it's not going to help anybody. Okay, I mean, we we really need to make sure we're doing this right this time. Wow, great! Thank you so much, Quinn. Really, really appreciate it. And Brent, I, as always. You have fascinating guests and really great conversations with people. For those who are listening to the podcast, it might be interested in having a conversation with you about other things financially related, not not necessarily psychically related. How could they get a hold of you and, and uh, what's the best way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, number here at the office is uh, 602-255-0555. Either myself or Susan or Andy or Kayla will pick up and uh, happy to schedule some time to talk with you. Uh, social media. The only the only platform I'm on is LinkedIn, but I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can find me there, uh, or MP Advisors AZ or SmartMoneySimplified.com. That has all of our contact information as well. And love to have a, love to have a discussion with uh, with anybody that's uh, this piqued their curiosity. I'm happy about to talk about this stuff as well, even though I can't speak can't speak to it with any <laughs> sense of uh, authority. That's for sure. But uh, I find the most interesting conversations tend to occur. Uh, when they when they start around something unique and interesting, and I think we definitely had one today. I, I completely agree with you. And our last thank you, of course, goes to the listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you are not a subscriber already, I don't. Why not hit the subscribe button? It's very easy. You subscribe, then you don't have to worry about when or where you heard Brent and how you get and tell you listen to it again because it will be delivered to your listening device automatically. On behalf of Brent and MP Advisors, I'm Bill Tucker, reminding you, do not wait. Live your best life today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.